This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. David Collada is here. He heads the Citizens Utility Board, which keeps a watch on your utility bills. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. The big unfinished piece of business in Springfield is an energy bill. Some call it a clean energy bill. Let's begin with you reducing to layman's terms, what is this energy bill? Well, right now we're in a little bit of a stalemate. We have two bills. One uh, that the governor's office is supporting, which uh, Cub supports as, as a member of the Clean Jobs Coalition, and another bill uh, written by uh, the Senate uh, that Climate Jobs Illinois, which is the labor coalition, uh, that they support. Now, those two bills have much in common. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of things are, are the same between the two bills, but there are really three uh, outstanding issues where we need to find uh, some common ground. I think it's the case right now that neither bill can pass, but I think there's hope here to find uh, a workable solution uh, that works for the governor, that works for the Senate, and that works uh, for the Clean Jobs Coalition and, and labor. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I think what we need to do here uh, is take advantage of the opportunity that we have to pass a bill that will put make Illinois a national leader on dealing with climate change, but do so in a way uh, that's good for consumers and ultimately leads to uh, uh, and increases utility accountability um, with, through ethics reforms and, uh, and other measures. So it's a very important issue. It's important to get it right, uh, but it's something that I think um, we hope happens here um, in the next little bit. We certainly don't have a ton of time. It's something that, that uh, if it's going to occur, I think it has to occur in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but it's certainly an important issue and one that um, that we look forward to and hopefully get something across the finish line here that's good for the state. Okay, since we have the luxury of time here, let's break down those three issues that divide both sides. Let's take them one at a time. What are the three issues? Okay, the first issue is around having uh, involves natural gas, essentially. Key to making a nation-leading climate bill is we have to get to 100% clean energy by a certain date. And uh, our coalition uh, believes that should be you know, 2045 um, at the latest in order to comply essentially with the Paris Climate Accord, what it suggests we need to do uh, to have a workable solution uh, to climate change. Uh, there's some question about, though, uh, how strong the cap should be in the interim for uh, existing natural gas plants, but also there's a couple new plants that uh, are under construction that labor has, has basically said, look, um, those plants are cleaner uh, than the existing natural gas plants, but, um, you know, and so has sort of balked on um, or has concerns around how hard those caps would be. So one issue involves kind of the future of natural gas. Uh, we think that that's resolvable. But, um, you know, it's obviously a very important issue, and the governor has been, has been clear, and I think this is appropriate, that he won't sign a bill, you know, unless it's, um, a, you know, a strong national leader on dealing with these issues. Uh, the second issue involves equity and prevailing wage. 
uh, this, when you get right down to it, um, you know, it's definitely we want to make sure these are good union uh, jobs, but we also have to make sure that all groups uh, across the, the state have an opportunity here. And key to that is, is that you want to make sure that we have new startups that are serving uh, BIPOC businesses, black and brown businesses. And, uh, you know, from our coalition's perspective, uh, you know, having them have to pay prevailing wage right off the bat uh, could be something that is really an impediment to getting the new types of businesses that we want and the equitable future uh, that we deserve. So that's another set of issues. Again, I think something that, that's resolvable, but um, uh, is it, definitely important that we get it right. And then the third, there are uh, two coal plants that are owned by municipal um, utilities. Uh, the Springfield CWLP plant, and then Prairie State, which is in southern Illinois and uh, has contracts with a whole slew of uh, municipal and co-op utilities around the Midwest. And, um, you know, that, that's a very a difficult topic because, you know, at the end of the day, it's a huge polluter um, in the state uh, of Illinois. Uh, but folks who are supportive of Prairie State have raised concerns about the hard cap, uh, the hard date that um, – uh, that, you know, uh, the governor has appropriately insisted on. So all these issues, you know, basically if you boil it down, it's about equity and, and decarbonization schedules. I think that they can be worked out. Uh, they're very important. And, uh, you know, certainly here it's pretty clear that, you know, if we want to build uh, labor and the Clean Jobs Coalition and others are going to have to find some common ground here. We hope that's what occurs. Now, we used to say that natural gas was the cleaner alternative to coal. Why are we picking on natural gas these days? Well, I don't think that we're picking on natural gas at all. I think, and it is true that natural gas is cleaner than coal, but it still uh, produces carbon emissions. And so the question here is not, you know, are we going to get rid of natural gas, you know, in five years and 10 years and 15 years? It really is okay, what we have to have is by 2045, if there's going to be natural gas, then it's clean. They sequester the carbon emissions or they were able uh, to find maybe green hydrogen uh, that, that, that is produced with renewable power or, or clean power um, to be used instead. So it's really a transition you know, to 100% clean energy economy, which the state has made strides on over the last 15, 20 years. And we're well positioned uh, to do this uh, particularly with the technological improvements in the renewable energy space. So um, it's not really picking on natural gas. It, it is saying, though, that in order to do what we need to do to deal with climate change responsibly and in a consumer-friendly fashion, we have to have a path here where we're supporting you know, new renewables, we're supporting clean energy, and we end up here with something that, um, that is going to be uh, you know, a nation leader on responding to climate change. Now, labor, of course, wants to protect those jobs at the two coal plants. How do you resolve and try to protect those employees? Well, it's very important that we have a just transition here. We want to make sure that, uh, that the, the folks who are working at, at the coal plants are taken care of, that they have opportunities to get jobs in the renewable industry and other. And, again, we're not talking here about uh, the, the coal plant is going to close uh, tomorrow. <laughs> Even in the, you know, in the governor's bill, which we support, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, 2042. So this is a long way off, 
But there are admittedly important issues that, that need to be resolved here, and I certainly understand Labor's perspective on this, and I respect it. Uh, but at the end of the day here, uh, you know, we need to do something to respond to climate change. We need to do something here to get a bill across the finish line that is going to require some compromises. But the governor has been pretty clear that you can't have a nation-leading climate bill if the one of the largest polluters in the state is completely exempted from that bill. So I do think this is something we can find common ground on. It's certainly a very important issue, uh, but um, you know we have to make sure that uh, at the end of the day, we have a bill that's in the best interest of the state. Now let's talk about nuclear. What do you think of Exelon threatening to close a couple of its uh, nuclear power plants uh, with several units if it doesn't get hundreds of millions of dollars of additional subsidies? Well, nuclear, I think, plays an important role in the state's energy mix. Um, it is carbon-free, uh, and that does position us well to deal uh, with climate change. Uh, it obviously has other issues associated with it, but it is, from a carbon perspective, car carbon-free, and that's a good thing. We think the governor's office handled this the right way. Uh, they hired an independent consultant to look at uh, Exelon's books. And uh, ultimately, we're able to reach an agreement here that I think is in the best interests of the state in the sense that it is true that, that uh, Exelon uh, will get some additional uh, funds if this bill supports, but it's no, by no means a blank, a blank check. Uh, it is, I think they negotiated a good deal and one that ultimately uh, will be less costly uh, for consumers because the truth of the matter is, is that the nuclear fleet, if it retires prematurely, uh, it's going to put us behind on dealing with climate change. And, and honestly, it's going to be way too expensive, in our view, to deal with climate change. So we think that, that uh, you know, that's not an argument for a blank check. And the governor's office, we think, did an excellent job negotiating uh, a deal here that is in the best interest of state and the, and the consumers. So that's our overall view, view on it. Back in the 70s, David, I remember ComEd President Tom Ayers at the birth of nuclear power in Illinois saying that it would be too cheap to meter. <laughs> what happened, David? Yeah, if only that were, if only that were true, right? Um, there's no question that, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, Illinois is a restructured state, which means the utilities like ComEd uh, no longer directly own, you know, generation. Uh, and the reason why is because of nuclear plant cost overruns. There's no question um, that, that, that that's the case, and it, and it wasn't uh, too cheap to meter. Uh, it is, of course, now um, a, a very large source of carbon-free electricity in the state. And if you are trying to solve for climate change, as we think is appropriate, we have to take that into account because to put it in perspective, if if the two nuclear plants close prematurely, we could build renewables uh, at about three or four times the scale that we ever had before in a year for about 10 to 12 years, and we'd just be back to where we are today. Uh, so that again, that's not an argument to give Exelon everything it wants, and that's not what the governor's office did. Um, and we certainly need to ramp up renewable power. That's a good thing. But from a public policy point of view and from a consumer point of view, uh, it kind of makes sense that, you know, we want coal to retire first, we want natural gas to retire second, and then you want nuclear to retire third, just because that's going to put us in the, give us a time and put us in the best place, you know, to have a, a plan here that's going to be uh, maximizing consumer value while, while dealing with, with uh, you know, climate change. 
And is it your impression that the $700 million over several years of subsidies to Exelon is a done deal and is not an issue? Uh, it's our impression that the, the, the governor's deal um, is part of both bills. And so I, I do think that it will be in, in included in, um, in whatever bill passes. Obviously, you never know. But um, I don't think when, when you look at what um, the issues uh, that are still being debated, that the Senate president has identified, that the governor has identified, uh, I think nuclear is not one of those uh, at, at this point. It really does get down to the decarbonization issue, uh, having a hard date for when we can reach 100% clean energy, and then some of these complicated issues around, uh, complicated but extraordinarily important issues about making sure that uh, all communities across the state, uh, especially uh, you know BIPOC communities, can benefit from the clean energy economy, which right now um, you know we're not doing as good a job as as we should be as a state. Now, do the ratepayers pay for the subsidy to Exelon? They do um, at the end of the day, but it's important to understand that uh, if the plants were to close prematurely, we end up paying more than we would otherwise, and which is why, you know, we are getting into the technical details, uh, which is why the fossil fuel companies have been so dead set opposed to any support for nuclear, not because bills will go up, it's precisely because bills will go down um, at, at the end of the day uh, because uh, of the way our energy system and market works. So we do think that, it, it, that uh, while the uh, ratepayers will pay to support the nuclear plants, um, they'll be saving um, in, in doing so because uh, the effects on capacity market prices, for example, will more than pay for that. Uh, so, you know, it's important that we have a good balance here uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you, I think Illinois has a good track record, actually, um, at putting together these kind of macro energy bills that, that find uh, the right balance, that strike the right balance and end up something that moves the state forward and positions us well uh, to deal with, with our environmental challenges as well. But as the uh, traditional watchdog for the ratepayers, are you real comfortable with another set of subsidies for Exelon? You know, look, it, it's, I think, in a perfect world, um, you, you wouldn't have to do this to consider these types of things. Uh, I, we look at these, at these issues overall, though, on a macro level. And when you look at, for example, uh, the Future Energy Jobs Act that contains um, a similar su uh, support for uh, two nuclear plants, different nuclear plants than, 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 than this time, but the Clinton and Quad Cities plants were supported by the Future Energy Jobs Act. And when you looked at the, what happened after that, uh, there were lawsuits filed against the state, against the whole structure. And those lawsuits argued that um, not that the subsidies were going to raise bills, again, it was just the opposite, that in effect the state was artificially and illegally, they argued, suppressing market prices and disadvantaging coal and, and natural gas. So we do think at the end of the day that we have to take a uh, consumer-friendly view here, look at what the effects are going to be, and uh, find the cheapest and fastest ways uh, to deal uh, to get to 100% clean energy. Nuclear can play an important role in that, does have an important role to play, but the key thing here is to make sure that the terms are as 
fair as they can be for consumers. And we think that's what the governor's office achieved here um, with the, you know, their negotiations you know, with Exelon. And the fact that they hired an independent consultant to really scour the books and examine and, and really find out you know, exactly what they needed. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to move forward here as a state and, uh, and continue to have uh, uh, you know, decent policy. Okay, uh, big picture, what do you think the compromise is going to look like, and how soon can uh, lawmakers be called back to approve it? Well, I don't know the answer to the, to the second question. Um, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Um, we know that the, the state fair is in the middle of August, and um, a, lot, a lot of legislators are, are in Springfield anyway for that, so that might be something to look at. It's hard to say exactly what a compromise would be. It's something that's there are discussions going on between our coalition and labor. Um, we're hopeful that, that those can reach some common ground. What I can say is that if we can't find common ground, it's highly unlikely uh, that a bill will pass. And if a bill doesn't pass, uh, that's not going to be particularly good for consumers, the environment, or labor. So it's our hope here at the end of the day that um, that through hard work and focus here and a recognition that we're all kind of in the same boat, we have to kind of turn mutually assured destruction, which is where we are now, into a, <laughs> into a mutually secured victory. And we think that's possible, um, but I, you know, I'd be lying if I said I think it's going to be easy because there's a lot of very tough and important issues uh, to work through. And there's a lot at stake, a lot of consequences. So, you know, we're, we're committed to, to doing what we can to try to get this across the finish line. I do think if a bill doesn't pass, it's going to be a very bad outcome for the state. Uh, I think it'll make it very harder, very much harder to reach our, our clean energy goals. Um, it's going to be bad for the solar industry. And I think it's going to be bad for consumers, too, because at, at the end of the day, uh, it's going to be that much more cost prohibitive to achieve our uh, clean energy objectives that the state has appropriately committed to because, um, you know, we do need to respond to, to climate change. Yeah, speaking of mutually assured destruction, what would it mean for ratepayers if there is no deal? If there's no deal, I, I think what you'd see in all likelihood is uh, capacity market prices are going up higher, so energy bills going up, up higher. Now, that wouldn't happen right away. There would probably be a time lag of at least a year. Uh, but they'd go up because you're losing, uh, you know, quite a bit of megawatts of, of nuclear power. So I think you'd see pressure, upward pressure on bills. The nuclear plants, I think, in all likelihood would be, would be replaced by natural gas, so they would be replaced by fossil fuels, um, thus making it harder uh, to reach our climate change goals. And, um, you know, when the state got around then to actually, uh, you know, achieving our climate change goals, it would be that much more expensive because, in effect, we'd be creating a hole because you're just losing so much carbon-free electricity if, if the plants close. There are other bad effects as well. Uh, so I do think it would not be a good outcome, you know, for consumers. And, of course, a key part of this bill uh, is utility accountability reform. There are a lot of measures in there that help respond to the ComEd scandal. 
um, you know, which consumers still haven't received compensation for. Uh, we're involved in a class action to, to try to achieve that, but there's good ethics reforms in the bill as well. Uh, there's a whole bunch of very strong policies around equity and, and account utility accountability, and, uh, you know, really uh, in advancements in energy efficiency policy. So there's a lot of good things in the bill. Um, it's, you know, if a bill does pass, it'll depend on how well it's implemented. But um, I think that uh, it's clearly in the best interest to do something here uh, if, if it's possible uh, rather than have it all fall through. And what are one or two of the ethics reforms that are in the bill? Well, so, for example, um, there'll, have, there'll be independent audits of uh, the, the utilities. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, that ComEd agreed to as part of its deferred prosecution agreement uh, with uh, the feds uh, will be enshrined in legislation and applied uh, to all utilities. There will be further uh, restrictions and, and disclosure requirements on their lobbying uh, activities. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good step in the right direction. It's not everything uh, that, that you'd necessarily want, but uh, I think it, it's certainly uh, significant progress, the utility accountability pieces that, uh, that are in both the Senate and uh, the, the governor's bill. So we're encouraged by that, and that's an important part here of, um, of getting it across the finish line. And I should also say that the formula rate, um, which is this rate-making system that, without going into all the details, is basically at issue in um, the deferred prosecution agreement that the, that the feds allege. Uh, and the formula rate was always something that, uh, that we've had issues with at Cub. It's, we've never supported it. And it replaces that. It gets rid of that. And that can only really happen through legislation. So that's another thing here, that, that by eliminating the formula rate, replacing it with a more consumer-friendly system, that's a pretty big uh, value add as well and something that we hope occurs but does require a bill to pass. What do you think? Has ComEd been behaving in Springfield since the scandal broke? Well, you never really know. Uh, you have to, but uh, I will say that this this is not a bill. Uh, neither bill has been written by uh, utilities in, in any sense. Um, I think that they have been uh, sidelined. Uh, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, the issues that we're involved in here now are uh, to get something across the finish line. Are, are really kind of big picture items around the future of uh, you know of clean energy and and how we are going to transition. Uh, to a system that um, is good for our environment and, and protects consumers. So, uh, you know, I, I do think ComEd has been on the sideline here, but obviously, uh, you know, you always want to make sure. <laughs> and what has the difference been with the absence of public official A. Mike Madigan on doing business in Springfield? Well, I mean, you know, every time you have new leadership, um, everyone's trying to figure out exactly what it means. But I don't really think it's made... Uh, you know, much of a difference uh, either way uh, at this point. I think, you know, Speaker Welch uh, has done an outstanding job. And uh, at the end of the day here, uh, we, you know, I, I think the, the, these issues, uh, we'll just wait and see how it, how it plays out. But, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's made much of a difference either way uh, at this point. So, um, but, uh, that, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, did you think that Madigan did anything wrong in the process of uh, lobbying down there? Well, that's for the courts, you know, ultimately uh, to decide. Uh, based on, you know, my personal experience, I don't know, I don't know anything about that. But ultimately, that's for the courts to to uh, to decide. 
Okay, that's David Collada. He leads the Citizens Utility Board, the watchdog on utility rates and all that kind of business. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. And after a break, our roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweeter, the Sun-Times. She covers Washington. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Ray Long at the Tribute. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sir. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hi, Bill. Well, we had a, a high-profile visit from the Attorney General Merrick Garland talking up the new federal strike forces against drug runners. And I want to think that there's so much cooperation and collaboration and uh, man and woman power being aimed at this problem that maybe at long last something will get done not only to get the guns from the uh, the illegal guns from the bad guys but maybe reduce street violence but then the other part of me thinks it's probably only a drop in the bucket what do you think ray is it more than a drop in the bucket well you got to you got to have hope on some of this stuff um the reality is that we had one day where there were three mass shootings, and one of them uh, included just down a few blocks from me at my go-to gas station, where eight people were shot at uh, in a party bus, and that's uh, close to the uh, kind of the border of Lincoln Park and the Gold Coast. So it is not just. Uh, what are the, some of the rougher parts of town, but some of the parts of town where you don't expect that kind of crime. And so there are needs that are clearly um, needing to be addressed. And what we've got here is uh, Garland trying to cut down on things like straw purchases where uh, somebody will buy guns for the bad guys and then give them to the then sell them to the bad guys or give them to the bad guys he hopes to cut down the pipeline of illegal guns but you know there's already so many guns on the street there's a more than a hundred thousand gang members who as um, superintendent brown said who all have a gun and so this is a this is a point that uh, garland is making here to try to bring it bring some control into what has become an out of control situation here in the city and he does seem sincere about it but greg what do you think i'm more than a drop in the bucket Potentially, Bill, but uh, it's not going to be a panacea. Um, I mean, the, the, the solution to Chicago's crime problem involves all kinds of things. Clearly, tough in certain law enforcement, a knowledge among bad guys that if you pull out a gun and just start shooting wildly, there's a good chance you're going to get caught and you're going to get locked up. That will help. Uh, and the, the feds are better at some of this than the, than the local authorities are. Uh, they're certainly better at, at prosecuting interstate gun crimes and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that will help. But none of that removes the, the, the core uh, 
inequity problems, uh, the racial problems, uh, economic disparity problems. That's, that's a basis for much of crime. And none of it is going to make uh, people on the south and west side all of a sudden start trusting the police as friends and cooperating with them rather than an occupying force. So they'll have an ultimate solution here. You need to have some of all of that. But, yeah, having the federal peace I think will help. Sounds right. Uh, Heather, how about you, optimist or pessimist? Well, I'm with Ray on this. they got to try to sort of come and, you know, look for the silver lining in this. Um, I think it's a little bit of a different strategy than we've seen in years past, although all of us have covered, you know, strike forces and task forces designed to reduce the flow of illegal guns into Chicago. There aren't additional agents being sent to Chicago, and so instead it's almost a different sort of fundamental approach to how to enforce the laws that are already on the books as opposed to sort of, you know, putting more, you know, for lack of a better term, boots on the ground or for, you know, sort of, you know, in stepping up visible enforcement on Chicago's south and west side where this problem is really concentrated. And I will be interested to see whether that pays off. And if it does pays off, if it pays off in a way that, people feel because we've heard the mayor talk recently about how, you know, if people don't feel safe, that nothing else matters. So, you know, it's certainly a, a, a problem of actual violence, but it's also a problem of perception. And if you're just changing the way you enforce court orders and, and arrests, and prosecutions, you know, I think it's a little bit difficult to make that translate into what people feel in their everyday life. But, of course, we will see. How about you, Lynn? Is this a new and improved approach? Uh, there are some new things. And let me uh, just uh, amplify that uh, this is one piece of many pieces in President Biden's administration ap approach to dealing with uh, gun crime. So... The, the crackdown on straw purchasers is a potential help. It is not going to solve everything, but if you have more coordination between prosecuting jurisdictions, so I, just so everybody remembers who's listening, a straw purchaser is a person with, who is not a criminal, who has no criminal record, no record of domestic violence, so you're clean enough to get past a federal background check. And because you have no criminal record, if the way they're going to get you is if you don't keep the gun and they, some, they could prove that because the gun turns up in a crime, they could trace it back to you and then you lied on the form that you filled out to get the gun. And I think that is kind of a new approach because it's hard to have a serious consequence to a straw purchaser. If you think there's going to be more, or you're going to have the book thrown you, it may, it may. Not one size fits all. There's also a lot of money in the COVID Recovery Act that's going to go to intervention and prevention. And Garland spent time with one of the violence interruption uh, nonprofits in the city. He visited with them. So he, he basically dealt with both uh, aspects or multiple aspects of the a program to deal with gun violence. Redeploying priorities is not a bad idea. You don't always need more people. Whether or not other prosecutions will suffer remains to be seen. A lot remains to be seen on this, but uh, 
It's interesting to also note that Garland, to kick off this five-city strike force, what they call a strike force, I call it maybe more of a redeployment, reprioritization, he was born in Chicago, raised in Lincolnwood. He came back home to launch this uh, initiative. Also this week, gang, the uh, mayor and the aldermen made a deal on civilian police oversight. Heather, it is very complicated, a hard-to-understand framework, and hard to see how it's going to really make much difference unless the community cooperates with it. What's your take on what the final deal looked like, Heather? Well, it really tried to split the balance between um, what the mayor would accept and what the community um, found at least reasonable. And, And really, you know, there was a lot of Uh, attention paid to the fact that the panel will not have the power to fire the police superintendent, but it would have, that would have required one of two things, a change in state law or a referendum. So that was never really on the table. Um, But what the panel does have, which I think could make a difference, is the ability to set policy. And we've seen time and again where we've had these high-profile police shootings or misconduct scandals, and nothing's really happened. This panel would have the power to sort of, you know, convene a hearing and dig in and write a new policy, like let's say a foot pursuit policy, and sort of force that onto the police department. Um, The mayor didn't want the panel to have that power. She said that it would have left her unable to keep the city safe. What she settled for was the ability to veto those policy decisions, which could then be over her veto could be then overridden by a two-thirds vote of the city council. So we heard from one of the the main sponsors of the ordinance, Alderman Roderick Sawyer, that he doesn't think that veto will ever come into play because it would create such a firestorm um, with the mayor overruling sort of, you know, a group, uh, a panel sort of, you know, created from the community about about police policy. So they feel like they got the better better angle of the deal here. And the mayor, what the mayor proposed several weeks ago was that this board would have only advisory power, and it certainly is more powerful than that. So it, it was really a compromise, um, but I think community groups are, are rightly proud that they pushed the mayor far more than she wanted to, whether it will be effective in restoring trust in the Chicago Police Department, especially among black and Latino Chicagoans, who have had decades of um, misconduct and and racist policing, uh, I think is yet to be seen. Ray, it really does look like the classic example of the result of committee work with many chiefs. Um, it's got layer upon layer of bodies at the district and various other levels. You've seen a lot of this uh, committee work come and go, Ray. Do you think this is plausible, workable? Well, I think it's I think it's workable, but I think it gives the mayor the upper hand because uh, she has veto power over some of these policies, and she would only be overridden with a two-thirds vote, as Heather said, and that is an enormous uh, leg up for the mayor because it is rare that a uh, uh, mayor gets overridden, but a two-thirds vote is a monster vote to uh, to see in the council. And uh, beating a mayor with that type of vote would mean that the the mayor has practically lost control of the city. How about you, Greg? What's your take on this? 
kind of in between, Bill. Um, I mean, the core question here is, uh, is is whether instilling some direct democracy is going to significantly improve public confidence in the police or not. Uh, the advocates said that, hey, the mayor's policies haven't worked. Uh, we need to give the people a say. They're going to elect members of this commission. The commission's going to do this and the commission's going to do that. You know, it might. But uh, uh, as, as we all know, democracy isn't always perfect. It sometimes goes to extremes. It, it, can, it can follow fads. Uh, and, you know, uh, and even with the, uh, the mayoral veto power here, uh, you, this is going to be a work in progress. We don't quite know. Um, I'd like to think that uh, that uh, people uh, are going to have more confidence in their police department as they elect directly uh, the people that supervise the department. Uh, but whether that is going to be the reality or not, we're just going to have to find out. I don't know. How about you, Lynn? What's the factor that will or will not make this framework work? Uh, crime is down. Police confidence up. No police uh, scandal. No... Uh, nothing to happen that will create a controversy. I, I, I think that that's kind of standard. You know, how these people get appointed, campaigns you run internally, externally, especially coming on top of an elected school board, may just be full employment for political consultants. So we might be in for a rocky road to get all this established, see what competing forces, outside interests, outside money come in. Uh, but I think it's not a hard uh, way to measure success that people have confidence in Chicago policing and that the police force uh, remains becomes a diverse force that is seen as positive for the city and not a negative. That is a big order, but I think a goal is not impossible to describe. It's hard to achieve. Hey, Ray, we should talk about Tim Mapes, who has now defended Tim Mapes in federal court. I see uh, he's getting 90,000 documents and secret recordings to uh, help uh, him defend himself, uh, things that may or may not involve his old boss, former Speaker Mike Madigan. What are the implications of him getting this uh, big dump of documents? Well, I thought it was interesting. I mean, we usually don't even write about a status hearing in federal court, but it was a hearing where they just check and see what's going on. And then during the status hearing uh, last week, uh, the prosecutor, Julia Schwartz, said, um, we've already sent some documents. Uh, we sent some in June. We'll be sending a voluminous amount uh, this week. It'll be approximately 90,000 uh, 90, records in, um, and uh, not only documents, but recordings. And so what they're trying to do here, Tim Mapes has been indicted for perjury for basically lying to the grand jury and attempted obstruction of justice. And he's uh, wrapped up as a, uh, uh, one of Mike Madigan's uh, closest insiders over the years. He was chief of staff for 25 years for the speaker. He was asked in the grand jury, uh, you know, to describe some of another lobbyist's uh, communications uh, on behalf of the speaker. And uh, from the indictment that came out uh, beforehand, we've seen that they were trying to determine what a what exactly uh, the speaker was 
was uh, using uh, another lobbyist for as a conduit. And so what we're trying to determine here is whether he knew all the things he said in the grand jury um, that he said he didn't know anything about. So they've, when you see that uh, big load of documents coming in, you're thinking, well, they must be sending uh, uh, items that show that he should know about the things that he said he didn't know anything about or the things that he said he didn't remember. And Heather, we should talk about Dr. Arwady. She uh, suggested this week that she will be recommending more masking because the COVID numbers are rising. She seems to be preparing the city for going back to some of the mitigations in COVID. How, how do you read what she said? Well, we got the first indication that that is exactly what is happening when the Chicago Department of Public Health, in conjunction with the Chicago Public Schools, announced that everyone will be required to wear a mask once school starts again at the end of August. That's regardless of vaccination status. And that is because, of course, uh, children younger than 12 are not yet eligible for the vaccine and likely won't be eligible for the vaccine sometime during the fall or winter. So I, I think that was the first step. I think that, you know, there is still technically a mask mandate at City Hall and businesses can impose mask mandates on their own, uh, as well as there being a mask mandate on Chicago public transportation. But the fact of the matter is, is that driven by the Delta variant, Chicago is seeing just truly, you know, concerning increases in the number of confirmed cases for a couple of weeks now. And now we're starting to see hospitalizations rise. And we know after a year plus of that, that that will lead to um, deaths, frankly. So that is what the city is trying to avoid. I think the city hopes at this point that Lollapalooza, which of course happens in about a week, will not serve as a super spreader event. People who attend either have to be vaccinated or present negative COVID tests within 72 hours. Um, but I think that there are going to be a lot of city officials um, and, excuse the pun, holding their breath until a couple of weeks after Lollapalooza when it becomes clear what the impact of that massive festival, which is expected to draw nearly a half a million, you know, a half a million people to Chicago, um, what that impact will be. Yeah, I'm not going there, but then I wouldn't be going there anyway. But, Greg, is the business community going to freak if City Hall starts reimposing uh, limitations? Well, a freak is, a, is a, an unusual word. Um, uh, they won't be very happy. Um, frankly, Bill, I have doubts as to whether we can put that genie back in the bottle again. Uh, mass mandates were not very popular to start with. Uh, trying to reinstate them now uh, when, the, when the core problem is that people who ought to be vaccinated aren't being vaccinated uh, is going to be really tough. Um, uh, but no, I mean, if, uh, if we put back limits on, uh, on uh, uh, restaurants, if we put limits on movie theaters, uh, uh, if we make the, uh, the, the White Sox, when, they, uh, when they're in the championship series, uh, play in front of a half-empty crowd, no, people are not going to be very happy about that, uh, which is why I, I predict that uh, uh, despite lots of clearings of throats and hints and whatever, the city's going to be really very slow to go in that direction. That's Greg Hines of Cranes. Thanks to him, to uh, Heather Sharon of WTTW also, Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, and Ray Long of the Tribune.
Up next, my colleague, Kim Gordon. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. With most of the focus recently on the pandemic, we haven't heard much about the opioid epidemic in Chicago, but there's a new program at Malcolm X College that will train community health workers to fight the crisis. Joining me today is Dr. Elizabeth Gemitter, Executive Director of the Initiatives and Projects at Malcolm X. Dr. Gemitter, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thank you for having me. Glad you're with us. So we haven't heard much about the opioid crisis recently, but it has not gone away. In fact, it has gotten worse in the city. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, I think the pandemic has really cast a shadow over the opioid epidemic for sure. Um, but we know it has gotten worse. A lot of that being due to social isolation, um, having to shelter at home, quarantine, and also having lack of quick access to treatment, support, and things like that that are typical um, in a non-pandemic world, if you will. And so this new program that's coming to Malcolm X um, will train community health workers. Tell us a little bit about the program and how it's going to work. Yeah, it's an awesome basic certificate program, and it really rolls out in two phases. Uh, Level one training is individuals will come to our community health worker program and go through that. Um, it's a one semester program. We cover tuition, books, all, all fees associated, and we're also able to offer a stipend for some living expenses. And at the completion of that one semester academic program, we help connect individuals with full-time employment um, under what's called an apprenticeship model, where the person is not only a full-time paid employee, but also receives an internship during that first year of their training. Um, and we also offer other uh, stipends at that time, too. So how many people are you planning to um, start with in this new program? Sure. So we ran our pilot cohort of students this spring. We had 20 students join us. Um, and now they are transitioning into the employment year um, of the grant work. But we have this grant for four years, um, and so we hope to enroll over 150 community health workers um, uh, over the course of the four-year grant. Registration is open now um, through August 26th, and we would love to have people come and join in. If anyone wants more information, ccc.edu backslash opioid. Great. And again, people can register at City Colleges and registrations open through August 26th. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.